Welcome to the podcast. You can listen to us on the go. Ditch the gas and start mowing, trimming, and blowing with Skill PowerCore 40 volt battery powered outdoor power equipment. New and now available at Lowe's. The PowerCore 40 mower with 25% longer runtime and industry leading charging times gets you back to work in just 15 minutes. Stop in or visit Lowe's.com and check them out during Lowe's Spring Fest going on now. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. Battery charges from 0 to 30% in 15 minutes based on a 2.5 amp hour battery, US only. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Thinking Crypto channel. I have a very special guest with me today, Phil Bonello, who's the Director of Research at Grayscale Investments. Phil, it's great to be chatting with you today. Thanks, Tony. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Phil, I'm excited to speak with you because I've wanted to get an inside look into Grayscale. We've heard a lot of news. You guys are doing some big things and uh, a lot of eyes on Grayscale. So, Lots of questions on my end, but let's start with your background. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Sure, yeah. Uh, originally from Chicago. I uh, grew up in the city of Chicago. I uh, went to University of Michigan. Uh, so, you know, Midwest, Midwest upbringing. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of my background. And, and what did you do before working at uh, Grayscale? Um, so... After school, I went to University of Michigan. After school, I uh, worked at IBM, and then I worked at a startup that did natural language generation. So uh, it's like a type of AI, um, mm. if you want to call it that. And then I uh, joined Ikigai Asset Management as the head of research. Ikigai is a long, short, multi-strategy crypto hedge fund um, out in LA. So that was a really interesting experience. And then I joined Grayscale about a year ago, over a little over a year ago. Um, and what was your first encounter with Bitcoin and crypto? And what was your aha moment? Like, oh, I get it. And I want to go work in this space. Yeah. So I think a lot of people join through Bitcoin. For me, it was really through Ethereum. Um, like I said, I was working at IBM and I was specifically working in like the IoT space. Um, I'm setting up like smart factories and such. And so when I started to look for new jobs, I was really interested in machine to machine communication. And I happened upon Ethereum on the message board. And I was like, oh, this is gonna solve so much of what I'm thinking about. Like, this is how machines are gonna autonom autonomously communicate with each other. And so really Ethereum was like the first entrance into the crypto world. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's when I fell down the rabbit hole. Got it. So I have to ask, what are you holding your crypto portfolio? Um, I'll say, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to shield my bags or anything like that. So I'll just say, you know, I hold, I hold Bitcoin. Um, I hold a collection of altcoins and Ethereum. So I'm not like a maximalist in any respect. Um, yeah. So I have a, I have a diversified crypto portfolio. Awesome. So let's talk about Grayscale. You know, for those who are new to crypto listening to this podcast or watching the video, can you give us a 30,000 foot view of Grayscale? What is it about? What are the services you provide? Yeah. Um, so Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is the flagship product for Grayscale, was founded in 2013. Grayscale itself was founded in 2015. 
what Grayscale does is essentially package crypto products uh, to resemble securities that are familiar to most investors. Um, you know, investing in the underlying can be kind of daunting to some people. And so uh, really what Grayscale does in the most simple terms is, is just package uh, cryptocurrencies into financial products that are familiar to investors. And uh, we have 14 different products, uh, most of which are single asset, si single asset passive products, and one of which is an index, a uh, market cap weighted index product. Got it. So it's essentially funds that are tied to specific cryptos and folks can invest in those respective funds. That's exactly right. Yeah. Now, is, is your service for institutional investors or do you also provide services to retail investors? Yeah. Um, so the private placement is open to uh, accredited investors. And what is unique about our products is that they are um, available to be traded on the secondary market. And so, um, you know, through a typical brokerage account, you can access something like Grayscale Bitcoin Trust under the ticker GBTC. Um, and so that is a common way for uh, investors to get exposure to Bitcoin. So we've heard a lot of reports of institutional investors investing in GBTC. Can you give us insight into what type of institutions uh, or institutional clients you're seeing demand from? Yeah, in general, um, it's dominated by hedge funds and family offices. We also see some interest and a growing amount of interest from pensions and endowments. Um, mm. But those are obviously like slower moving institutions. And um, yeah, so so right now it's, it's really the hedge funds and the family offices that are pouring into crypto. Got it. Yeah, I'm always curious. And I think the audience listening to as to who's the next the next, what's the next domino to fall, right? From that perspective. And it seems corporates are, you know, jumping in, putting Bitcoin in their balance sheet and all these things are happening. So um, I've seen your assets grow almost exponentially year over year, quarter over quarter, month over month. You know, what's the current asset under management and what type of growth have you guys been seeing? Yeah, I think our current uh, AUM is about 50 billion, uh, wow. which is quite amazing given that I think at the beginning of 2020, it was about 2 billion. Um, so just astonishing, <laughs> astonishing growth. Um, you know, the, the appreciation in crypto has definitely helped, but we have also seen enormous inflows. I think in Q4, we saw approximately 3 billion in inflows and Q1 was a, a really strong quarter as well for us. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's been amazing. And I think one of the driving factors of that certainly has been the narrative of monetary inflation, uh, which we first saw kind of Paul Tudor Jones from a kind of institutional trading perspective highlight in I think May of 2020. And since then, we've seen a lot of people pile onto that narrative um, as M2 really grew, you know, 27% year over year. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we, I think a lot of people are expecting just some massive inflation that's coming. And uh, it seems a lot of folks are moving towards crypto now. Um, can you tell us about the recent addition of uh, Filecoin, Chainlink, and the other cryptos? You, you guys added a handful there. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we've been working on these products for a while. We're always trying to bring new products that are demanded in the marketplace uh, to our Grayscale product suite. Um, and I, I'm, I really like this, the, the diversity of products that we brought to market. So 
Live Peer is a video transcoding service, uh, you know, a really robust decentralized network to provide uh, video transcoding, which is important if we want to have uh, uh, like anti-fragile live streaming at some point. Um, Filecoin is a decentralized storage network, uh, which I'm really excited about decentralized storage. It's just a massive market. Um, uh, Decentraland or in the, the uh, asset behind Decentraland in this case is Mana. And virtual worlds are, I think, kind of an in inevitability uh, in crypto. And crypto is really enabling virtual worlds to become a big, really a big market. Um, Brave Browser has, I think, over 25 million monthly active users. And their token is uh, basic attention token. So, so that's really exciting. And then Chainlink is sort of the leader in the Oracle space. And Oracles are thought of as kind of a bridge between off-chain data and on-chain uh, services. So a lot of services, especially in decentralized finance, require data feeds. Mm -hmm. And Chainlink is kind of the primary bridge to bring uh, price data and you know different types of data onto blockchain networks. So I'm curious, I'm sure you as a director of research you know, you're looking at these respective tokens and different cryptos and digital assets as to maybe what can be added to Grayscale's portfolio. But also, or do you guys take into account maybe if your clients are asking, hey, when you when are you going to have a Chainlink uh, trust? How's that process? Yeah, absolutely. I think the one of the primary inputs is is their market demand. You know, we, we want to, we ultimately want to be a bridge to access crypto. And um, if our clients really have a high demand for some of these assets, we want to rush to bring them to market in kind of the best way possible. For sure. Um, so I have to ask, and if, I don't know if you can speak to it, uh, but I have to ask. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's plans to add new cryptos. Any hints or insights you can share there? You know, <laughs> all, all I can really say is we're, we're always trying to meet market demand. And uh, I think when you look at the market right now, it's pretty clear where there's where there's demand. Um, and so we are we are trying to build products that will that will kind of uh, meet the demand that we're seeing from our clients and meet the demand that we're seeing in the general market. Um, and as far as the custody for the cryptos that you have, who, who do you currently use for custodial services? Um, yeah, so currently we use Coinbase, um, and yeah, that we're I think we're probably their largest client. Okay, got it, got it. So all the respective cryptos you have in your trust, um, Coinbase custody is for you. Um, and and would it would it be safe to say that if there's a, a asset they don't support necessarily on, on their exchange, you would maybe use another custodian, or it doesn't matter. You could just custody, whatever you need to with them. Yeah. Custody is, is certainly a prerequisite for us. Um, I, we have, you know, we make that decision when we're deciding whether we want to um, support a given asset. Um, I, I don't want to speak too specifically to our, to our process, but uh, yeah. Got it. Um, now there's reports about grayscale premium and, and possibly some issues there. And I would hope that, you would be able to maybe add some clarity, shine some light on the situation and how Grayscale is looking to address it. Sure, yeah. I mean, so I think it's important to remember that the uh, GBTC price 
is kind of a market-based phenomenon, right? So we we issue shares on uh, through a private placement process, and later on, those shares are freely trade tradable. Um, so at any point in time, the price of GBTC may not necessarily reflect the price of the underlying, and um, you know, throughout GBTC's lifetime, those shares have traded at, at a premium. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, right now with new products coming to market with an increased number of shares out of the market, um, it has been trading at a discount. And so uh, that, that isn't something that we necessarily have a specific purview into. It's really just a market phenomenon um, and, uh, you know, it's a d- demand and supply issue. Sure. Now, I've heard talks and, and from your CEO, Michael, about transitioning the GBTC to a Bitcoin ETF. Can you tell us about that and how that would be done? And, and look, there's so many people throwing their hats in the ring to try to get a Bitcoin ETF. You know, in addition to how that will be done, what are your, what's your outlook and optimism as far as getting one approved this year? Yeah, so as as Michael has said, uh, I think Barry said this as well. You know, G, uh, Grayscale is fully committed to um, uh, to converting GBTC into an ETF. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind in mind that it's a long road. Uh, the regulatory environment is you know certainly unclear, um, and Grayscale is really taking like all the approaches that it can. We're uh, well positioned and we're engaging with the SEC um, as appropriate. Um, you know, your previous point about the premium and the discount, I would say that, you know, if GBTC were to be converted into an ETF, um, there would be, uh, those GBTC shares would be automatically converted into the ETF shares. Um, and given the way that an ETF functions, uh, there would be an arbitrage opportunity, which would, you know, likely close any premium or discount gap. That's interesting. Um, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on Gary Genser, a, a man who's now going to be determined, but very knowledgeable about crypto, was teaching uh, Bitcoin and crypto at MIT, which I think is unprecedented for any SEC or regulatory uh, person or leading even a division. What are your thoughts that, you know, given that he knows about it, the likelihood of one getting a, or multiple ETFs getting approved this year is, is, is uh, very high. So I, I certainly think that it's a positive development that Gary Gensler is, uh, you know, in the SEC chair right now. And he's, uh, it's great that he's so educated on crypto and so educated on blockchain and that he's, uh, uh, you know, taught classes at MIT. I, I wouldn't want to speak specifically to, you know, whether that means it's more or less likely that a, a crypto ETF gets approved, but um, it's great that we have regulators that are really educated on, on the matter. Um, and I think that when an ETF gets, get, gets approved, um, it's going to be a huge moment for the industry. Obviously, it just it gives everybody access to crypto in a way that just currently isn't uh, possible. Yeah, absolutely. I think everybody's anxiously awaiting it, given that uh, the summer being approved in Canada and, and other countries. And obviously, it starts with a Bitcoin ETF and then an ETF can follow and so on and so forth. Um, so I want to ask, you know, what are some of the trends? I know you, you can't speak to everything, but uh, maybe what you can share as the director of research, what are you seeing in the crypto market as a whole um, from the grayscale perspective? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think what a lot of people are talking about, right? Um, I think decentralized finance is incredibly interesting. Uh, that uh, the ability to have peer-to-peer -peer borrowing, lending, exchange, build derivative products, build fixed income products, um, that's pretty amazing. And I think uh, like Ethereum as a, as a network and some of these smart contract networks are just very well positioned to build those types of products. Um, I think NFTs are really interesting as well. Um, we've obviously, there's obviously been a lot of hype in the NFT space, um, things selling for just what seem like kind of crazy prices. Um, but, but people love NFTs, uh, whether it's just artwork or it's an avatar um, or, you know, more of a functional NFT where there's some sort of use tied to a specific, uh, a, a specific state signature. You, you can't deny that the market is responding favorably to, um, to NFTs. Uh, I'm also like really interested in what is happening in the storage space. Mm. Uh, you know, I mentioned that we, we uh, recently listed Filecoin as, as one of our products. When I think about one of the biggest tra potential transformations in the next 10, 20 years is taking personal ownership of data versus uh, kind of conglomerates owning our data. Mm -hmm. And so whenever that becomes really easy to do, that's going to be a huge watershed moment. Uh, so that's something I'm watching as well. So would, would, it, would it be safe to say Grayscale may explore some options with offering some sort of NFT product or marketplace or something? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I would go that far, but um, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're always, we're always exploring. Sure. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about uh, Grayscale commercials. Um, certainly a uh, very interesting topic for the crypto market and, and folks love to see that the commercials are being put out and it's getting the word out there for the crypto market. You know, walk me through some of the things you guys are thinking of, some of the current commercials and so on and so forth. Yeah, you know, I, I, I must say that I didn't have my hand in, in the making of the commercial on a day-to-day -day basis, but I think what was interesting and I think what was communicated in the commercial was really this juxtaposition of, of uh, Bitcoin and crypto being this really scary environment and something that's, you know, like the dark web, like this magic, magic internet money. People really, they view it as uh, this opaque space, right? And, and what Grayscale does is we try to make it very easy, a very easy space to invest in. And so that was really the juxtaposition of the commercial where, you know, there's this like kind of this uh, fight between the criminal and like the main character. And then really they're just sitting in their living room and uh, she, she just simply invested in Grayscale through her brokerage account. Yeah, for sure. I, I remember the drop gold campaign and, and uh, gold bugs going crazy over that <laughs> commercial. So, uh, that's, but I, uh, I yeah, that's that one has fared pretty well, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah the likes of uh, Peter Schiff and these guys going nuts. Um, but yeah. yeah, I love it. I, I love that you guys are doing kind of that mass marketing and uh, it seems to be working well for you all. Um, so I, I kind of asked you some questions along this line, but um, you know, obviously there's things under NDA and things you, you won't be able to speak to, but maybe you can drop some hints as to, you know, what else we can expect from Grayscale in 2021. Maybe it's additional coin trust, whatever those coins may be or anything else. 
Yeah. Um, again, you know, I can't really speak. I can't really speak to any specific coins. Um, I, I, yeah, or any sp- specific product developments. Um, but there possibly plans to add more for sure. But we're certainly, yeah, we're certainly exploring. We have plans to add more, more products in the, in the coming year. Awesome. Um, I recently, I think it was reported like Digital Currency Group, obviously the parent company of Grayscale, uh, Barry Silver, uh, they've been buying the GBTC um, shares, if, if I'm articulating that well. Um, what's the thought process behind that? It's just they're trying to get a holding on their books, you know, uh, having exposure to Bitcoin, but through the, the, the uh, GBTC. Yeah, I, I think I think it's really... Um a mechanism to show the market, show our customers that we are fully committed to uh, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust as a product, um, and that and that we're we're also betting on it, right? So uh, we we uh, while there is while there is a discount, that discount also presents an opportunity. So if if that discount were ever to close, then you're able to capture you know, that arbitrage between that discount and the net asset value. Um, you know, if an ETF were to get approved, then that arbitrage would close as well. So um, really, I think uh, Barry and Michael and uh, kind of DCG really wanted to show the market that they're they're kind of with the customers, with the, the GBTC customers. For sure. Uh, so let's talk about the market as a whole. And obviously Bitcoin, we're in a bull market Bitcoin's been on the rise. Everything's rising. You know, what are your guys' perspective and outlook on this? And and you know, do you guys believe in like the stock to flow model? And you know, how to, anything you can share on there that take us behind the curtain? What what are you guys talking about? What are you thinking about as the market is on the rise? Sure, I like to look at on chain metrics. Uh, one of the metrics that I uh, particularly like is something that I call the um, speculator versus holder index. And so I categorize holders as people or coins that have been held for uh, one to three years. So that filters out kind of short-term supply and it also filters out coins that have potentially been lost um, or stolen and just, you know, they're never gonna move again. And then you have on the speculator side, coins that have moved in the last zero to 90 days. So what you typically want to see is a really large holder base and a really low speculator base. And so, you know, in, in the summer, last summer, we saw a massive, massive holder base, which pretty much signaled to us that, okay, these holders, these one to three year holders have gone through an amazing amount of volatility and they have not sold through it. Right. And so, so price sitting at, um, you know, 8,000, these, these holders probably are not going to sell until at least a new high, right? Because they've, they've undergone volatility over the last one to three years. Um, and so now as we've reached new highs, we start to see that holder base start to change a little bit. The holders are going down, uh, speculators are going up a little bit, um, which I think just indicates that we're later on in the market cycle, right? Like, I think everyone would agree with that. We're obviously not at the very beginning of it. Um, and so, so yeah, I think one thing to caveat there is potentially some of those old holders have uh, sold their coins to 
a new set of holders. Um, you know, I'm talking about institutions in this case, which have a much longer time frame, much longer time horizon on their on their uh, kind of you know holdings. Like they're they're not they're not necessarily putting 50, 75 percent of their um, treasuries into Bitcoin. They're putting maybe 0.5, maybe 1% of their treasuries in. <clears throat> and with such a small allocation, they can feel comfortable with a long holding period as well. And so I think we've, we've seen also that corroborated like through on-chain metrics, um, like the amount of supply that's uh, on exchange. And so you can see that there are some, sometimes there are these really large outflows from exchanges to um, kind of uh, probably custodial wallets. And so I, I, that's a potential indication of institutional adoption. So we've been seeing the likes of MicroStrategy, Tesla, and so forth, and so on and so forth, putting Bitcoin in a balance sheet. I think we just heard about Mogo. Um, they bought some Ether and, and they have some Bitcoin. So there's a trend here, um, and it goes back to the, the reason of inflation and the monetary policy. Um, are you guys in any way approaching these corporates to say, hey, instead of you don't have to go through the whole jumping through all these hoops to buy the actual asset, but you can buy GBTC and that could be a way for you to get exposure. Is that like a strategy of yours to approach these folks? Yeah, I do believe the sales team is, is um, that they do have that approach. And I think there are actually some um, potential accounting benefits in holding GBTC versus holding the underlying. Got it. And, and would some of that be, holding GBTC versus the actual asset be, be maybe like regulation wise, it, it maybe protects certain companies. I think that might be part of it, but there's specifically a, a gap accounting rule. So um, uh, yeah, you know, and I, unfortunately I can't speak to the, <laughs> you know, the, all the accounting nuances, but I know that that is something that has been raised uh, specifically around GBTC. Got it. Uh so I want to ask, because Dogecoin is going crazy. I, I personally don't hold Dogecoin, but I know a lot of people are talking about Elon's talking about, he said he's going to talk about an, an, an SNL coming this weekend. You know, what do you guys think about that? Because, you know, are, is anybody asking you, hey, where's where's the Doge trust fund or trust account, uh, index or whatever it is? Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know if there's been a whole lot of inbound interest around Dogecoin or anything like that, but uh, it's certainly an amazing phenomenon and I don't, you can't fight it. You know, it's the market and the market uh, has decided that Doge is worth $60 billion or whatever it is. Um, Yeah. You know, I think it's, I think it's kind of around this idea of financial populism, which we saw with uh, GME and uh, kind of the little guy, you know, taking out taking out the people who think that something is not worth you know whatever the value they deem it's worth um and uh yeah it's pretty interesting uh obviously they have elon helping the whole price action but yeah it's been it's been kind of fun it's been kind of fun to see yeah you know what's interesting is elon he he, he tweeted about it that he holds bitcoin he hasn't sold any tesla sold a small amount to prove liquidity. Um, and then they still hold a majority of what they bought on their balance sheet, but they're not holding Doge. But I, I think I feel like, I don't know if Elon's trolling and it's just fun and, and that's driving the price up. And uh, it's, it's like you said, an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. And uh, 
what was interesting, I, like that was the first time that Elon, in that tweet that you mentioned, that was the first time that Elon really referenced his ownership of Bitcoin, at least, you know, large ownership. Uh, he, I guess he didn't say how much, but he said, I haven't sold any of my Bitcoin. And I, I think that is probably in reference to a larger amount of Bitcoin than he's previously said he had. I think he had said he had like maybe like half a Bitcoin or something. Um, so, yeah, I think that's also a very bullish development. For sure. Um, so I want to ask you about uh, crypto regulations. Obviously, we're still waiting on full regulations, let's say from the SEC. I think we do have some level regulations from the CFTC. And is Grayscale participating in lobbying and or any active advocacy groups and things like that? Anything you can share there? Um, I think we're making ourselves very much available to the SEC. Um, we're members of the Blockchain Association, mm. um, so we you know help where we can there. Um, but yeah, it's just like an ongoing communication with the SEC. Got it. Um, well, I hope uh, this year we are able to finally get that regulatory clarity that we need and maybe congress is is the one that has to take action here but um obviously some um, some situations going on with the sec and, and some other cryptos but uh um okay uh you know as far as cbdc's w- w- what do you guys think about that with central banks tokenizing fiat currencies and, and could grayscale be involved in helping with any of this or whatever it may be yeah, I, I actually wrote a report on the difference between CBDCs and kind of public uh, public digital currencies, right? Um, it's interesting. There may be efficiency gains in, in CBDCs. In a way, I, I think of USDC as almost a CBDC, right? It's a, it's a stable coin that's under the purview of um, kind of the U.S. government, Um so I, I struggle to see kind of the long-term utility of, of CBDCs. When, when I think about why digital currencies have become so popular, it's not because they're digital, but it's because they're permissionless, they have fixed supply, they may have interesting token dynamics going on. Um, but like with respect to a, a CBDC, it still is totally and wholly controlled by uh, you know, a central government. And that central government can seize that, that CBDC. They can print more of that CBDC. Uh, they can restrict the transfer of that CBDC. And so you then basically lose all of the great things, um, you know, that make something like Bitcoin, Bitcoin, right? Like Bitcoin is not special because it's digital. Um, it's special because it's censorship resistant, it's fixed supply, um, it's seizure resistant. Um, it's open and permissionless to everybody in the world. Uh, you know, those are qualities that, um, for better or worse, I guess, you can't have a central actor um, in that situation. Because at some point, that central actor will be faced with the decision of whether or not to limit any of those characteristics that I just mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, like, uh, the, I, and I interviewed Chris Giancarlo, who's heading up the Digital Dollar Project. and. Yeah. I think one of the, the open-ended questions or questions on the table that hasn't been answered is what's how does this line up with the Constitution and, and privacy and, and, and the Bill of Rights and all of that? Um, and I think that still has to be figured out because to your point, they're going to be able to track and even it's even more centralized and, and you know, try to probably instantly tax you and 
whatever it may be, it seems like those things are on the horizon, but probably yeah. a larger debate that has to, ha- has to happen with our rights. I don't think it's a coincidence that China is leading the way on CBDCs, right? It's, uh, it's a really useful tool for a, a government that wants you know, potentially take more control. For sure. Um, so I want to ask, you know, being the director of research and you're probably looking at this market macro level, you know, where do you see crypto in three to five years, you know, from an adoption standpoint, like, you know, price aside, do, do you see like a lot of uh, pretty much every company accepting crypto people spending it crypto ATMs popping up, you know, where, where do you see the future of it? Yeah, I, I think this year was the first time that we really saw the development of applications with a good user base. And so I see this as the beginning of a 10 to 20 year trend Mm. um, in how we kind of use uh, online tools. Um, Yeah. Prior to this year, it was really unclear how any of this was actually going to come together. I think Um, I looked at Bitcoin and, and, and I, I would say like, okay, Bitcoin is ready for the world and the world is ready for Bitcoin. Uh, the technology was there already, right? Like there, there's not a whole lot that needs to be done for Bitcoin to work. Um, it's a store of value. With Ethereum, what we're running into right now is more than anything, it's a broad, uh, like it's a, um, a bandwidth issue, right? Mm. There's, there's not enough bandwidth to support um, like how much demand there is in, in crypto. And that's an amazing problem to have, right? Like there's, there is the demand. Um, now we just need to scale and we just make the user experience really great and people will start to use it. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm really hopeful. Uh, I, I think a lot of, I think gaming will be a huge area of, of adoption. We're already seeing that. Uh, decentralized finance, of course. Like the thing with, and I, I asked, I'm trying to figure this question out currently is, what is the best way to measure the success of something like decentralized finance, right? Like, do you want, do you want to look at uh, just aggregate users on a daily basis? I'm not sure um, because do, do people generally participate in, in their, in de- like, de- like finance on a daily basis? Is that what most people in the world do? Is that a, you know, broad based application or is that something that's going to be more behind the scenes and more of like a, institutional adoption type of thing or something that companies companies integrate with DeFi and then people integrate with those companies. Um, so I think it's a question of how are layers built out and where in that tech layer um, will uh, consumers uh, have their touch points. So yeah, I, I, think, I think it's great. Um, I'm, I'm more optimistic now on crypto than I really ever have been. For sure. Yeah, it's, it seems uh, everybody jumping on board yesterday, eBay CEO talked about it, like they're exploring crypto payments as well as NFT auctions, which would be huge. And I can't imagine that Amazon is sitting sitting on their laurels just watching everybody do this. I think they might be on their way. And who yeah. knows, maybe they create their own coin, Prime Coin or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that would be interesting. So do you, do you think um, on that note, like, companies like Amazon and Google, we know Facebook's creating their own digital currency, uh, would start to build their own respective coins and not necessarily to comp- compete with Bitcoin, but within their own ecosystem. Um, and that adds even, you know, adds value 
and retention to, you know, for their customer base? Maybe, you know, I kind of struggle to see where that value is. Like I could see it from like a loyalty, you know, loyalty perspective. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe they do some retroactive token. Uh, you know, so if you were, if you've been a great customer of uh, Amazon or eBay or something like that, then they can airdrop you some tokens like we've seen with some of the DeFi protocols. That'd be pretty interesting. Um, you know, but I, I, I think what I'm more excited about is really new companies coming to disrupt the, the incumbents. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we're going to see some massive, massive companies be built over the next decade. Wow. Uh, well, certainly I'm excited about the future of crypto. And um, I think my last question here, if there's anything I missed, if there's anything uh, that you you're seeing on your end that you, you, you know, you, it really piques your interest on the folks at Grayscale that you want to share uh, any thoughts on? Um, you know, I don't think so. I think I've touched on it. I think we're, you know, we're, we're watching a lot of the developments really closely, like DeFi, NFTs, storage. Um, I think the infrastructure build out is really interesting. So like I talked, like I talked about with live here and Chainlink. Um, that's that's all really needs we need all of that to scale um crypto so that the user experience can catch up and so that we can really onboard like a billion users right um i think i looked a couple weeks ago and we still have under three million daily active users on ethereum and bitcoin in aggregate right and so that's that's peanuts uh (laughs) And so we have a long way to go to really bring this asset class into maturity. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm just really excited to see some of these projects come to market. For sure. Um, well, let's wrap it up here with some rapid fire questions such as, uh, what's your favorite food? You know, a good ribeye uh, <laughs> is probably, like, uh, that's, that's kind of my go-to. I'll often just go pick up a ribeye and toss it on the grill and that'll be my dinner. Nice. Uh, favorite musician or band? Uh, Jack Johnson. That's kind of my go-to. That's been my go-to for a long time. Awesome. I, I enjoy some Jack Johnson myself. Uh, favorite movie? Uh, Pulp Fiction. Great one. Uh, favorite book? The Sovereign Individual. Very nice. And when you're not working at Grayscale, uh, what are you doing for fun as a hobby? Yeah, you know, it's it's tough to pull my, pull myself away from crypto, uh, you know, whether it's grayscale or just generally crypto. But uh, um, I like I like working out, uh, playing tennis, playing golf. Yeah, awesome. doing active stuff. Uh, well, uh, now that NYC is opening up, I guess you'll you'll be out, out and about a bit more <laughs> there. Absolutely, yeah, I'm excited for it. Awesome. Well, Phil, uh, pleasure chatting with you. Uh, excited to see what the new developments will be later this year for Grayscale and hope to have you back on, but thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be on. Thanks, Tony. Really appreciate it. Ditch the gas and start mowing, trimming, and blowing with Skill Power Core 40 volt battery powered outdoor power equipment. New and now available at Lowe's. 
The PowerCore 40 mower with 25% longer runtime and industry-leading charging times gets you back to work in just 15 minutes. Stop in or visit Lowe's.com and check them out during Lowe's Spring Fest going on now. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. Battery charges from 0 to 30% in 15 minutes based on a 2.5 amp hour battery, U.S. only. Keep listening to our weekly episodes to find out more. I work in aviation, but the truth is, I don't much like flying. Current commercial flights are inconvenient, noisy, expensive, and use ancient plane designs that have hardly changed from the 1950s. It also represents my biggest personal impact on the environment, just as it does for many of us who fly multiple times a year. Aviation will continue to face fierce headwinds globally, even after the pandemic subsides, because flying is becoming the symbol of a polluting lifestyle. Pressure is growing to decarbonize planes or even cease flying altogether. But the great news is that a change which will reroute our industry's flight path into fresh tailwinds has already begun and is gathering speed. This change is the third revolution in aviation, electrification, and it is happening right now. Like the previous piston and jet revolutions, going electric will dramatically transform the way we fly. Electrification promises to make flying accessible to more people globally from more airports while also making planes cleaner, quieter, and more affordable. The current dominant narrative is that we need to buy offsets while waiting for some miracle future clean fuel, and meanwhile keep cramming people into tubes at increasingly congested hubs. That fails to reckon with the rapid progress in electric technology across nearly all other forms of transportation. So my answer in 2016 was to create a company called Ampere and develop an electric aircraft capable of flying real routes for real airlines. And we have done so with this plane, the Electric Eel, which first flew in 2019. In 2020, our second generation of this plane flew with an airline partner in Hawaii, demoing daily flight operations on one of their routes, a world first. Meanwhile, we're hard at work on the third generation of the Eel, as well as scaling up to a much larger 19-passenger aircraft with the help of NASA. Now, these aren't yet fully electric planes. They're hybrids. And that's actually my point today and why the current dominant narrative misses the mark. Electrification does not only mean pure battery electric. That's just not possible yet when you need to carry passengers or cargo, except for small trainer aircraft. Instead, our industry must start saving massive amounts of fuel and emissions by electrifying the entire aviation ecosystem. Electrifying aviation right now means solar panels and battery backup systems at airports, plugging planes into gate power instead of burning fuel, electric taxi to the runway, as well as electric tugs and ground equipment. For flight itself, electrification means starting with small aircraft and for planes of meaningful commercial size, payload and range, starting hybrid. Although hybrid isn't the ultimate goal, it is critical to start right now rather than waiting for future batteries or future fuels. Think of cars where we had a small Prius decades before a large Tesla semi-truck. Small planes like Ampere's are the proving grounds for electric technology, be it lighter high-voltage cables, 
better compact motors, or advanced power electronics that are key to unlocking higher efficiency in aircraft of all sizes. Electrification will permeate everything, from jumbo jets becoming more electric aircraft to repowering island hopper prop planes. As batteries and electronics improve, larger and larger aircraft will get more and more electric over time. This is not a pipe dream, but represents iteration along a practical, cost-effective, and achievable route into the future. Ampere is being joined by other companies that are also striving to transform aviation to a cleaner future. It's a revolution in the making, building on technologies derived from electric ground transport, inventing new solutions, and taking them higher and higher into the stratosphere. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm talking to you today from my home in Brazil, where I live with my wife and two kids. Let me start by asking a question to the other parents out there. Would you consider asking a total stranger, someone you've never met before, never even seen before, to meet your kids after school, put your kids in their car, which by the way, you haven't seen either, and drive them halfway across town? Even just asking that hypothetical question freaks me out. Let me ask you another question. Would you invest in a business that does that? Have strangers driving kids around town? It seems like an absurdly untrustworthy value proposition. An impossible business plan, doomed to fail, doesn't it? Well, this may come as a surprise to you, but back in 2014, three moms started a company called Hop Skip Drive with, with this exact model. It served 1 million customers and in February 2020 raised $22 million and expanded to several cities in the US. Is the business foolproof? Well, no business is, but it's good enough to keep growing. How did they do that? How did they create trust in what many of us believe is one of the most inherently untrustworthy situations possible? The short answer, they built trust in the overall system. Customers don't necessarily trust hop-skip drivers, that will be relational trust, but they do trust the hop-skip drive system, what we call systemic trust, and that's what makes it work. I am fascinated by this. Here in Brazil, people these days tend to say that trust is a rare commodity. I don't think we are alone. Trust appears to have broken down all around us, and yet, the concept of trust has never been so fashionable. But what is trust really? Is it a feeling, an invisible part of our human DNA or culture, or this quasi-spiritual thing like the Force in Star Wars? Or is it really something more concrete? I am an engineer and a consultant, worse still, with a PhD, so sorry about that. I study the structures and systems of businesses and organizations. So, a couple of years ago, I started wondering whether we could 
decode and manage this seemingly intangible concept of trust. I'm pleased to report we are doing it, which I believe is really important because from my perspective, if we can decode how trust impacts businesses, we can make them more successful, which might mean that their partners and employees are more engaged and can be more cooperative. And we as customers can be happier, more satisfied and safer when we interact with them. So today I want to present to you the results of our study and also offer to you a toolbox to build systemic trust. We basically started with a sizable graveyard of over 100 failed business ecosystems. And by business ecosystem, we mean a business that can only function if all participants cooperate. Care.com, a childcare ecosystem, is a great example. Independent babysitters, independent parents all have to work together in order to make the system work. Amazon and Apple iOS are also business ecosystems. It is that necessary cooperation that makes those business ecosystems a perfect laboratory to study trust. And in this study, we define trust as the confidence that someone or something will deliver on a promise or behave as expected. We went into this wanting to understand whether trust was playing any role whatsoever in this failed ecosystem's inability to scale and grow in comparison to their successful peers. For instance, we study Orkut versus Facebook. What is that? You don't know what Orkut is? Why doesn't that surprise me? Green Blackberry versus Apple iOS or Android. House trip versus Airbnb. I bet you haven't booked your last vacation on house trip, have you? You get the idea. What we found is that trust does play a meaningful role between success and failure of business ecosystems. It wasn't always the final nail in the coffin, but it was relevant to send more than half to the graveyard. Why was that? Many of the failed ecosystems made the mistake of naively assuming that cooperation anchored on trust would spontaneously emerge between complete strangers, and yet, we found more than 70% of uncooperative behaviors in the failed ecosystems. In contrast, nearly 9 in 10 of the successful ecosystems actively embedded trust right into the workings of the platform. They built systemic trust. In essence, ecosystems were competing on trust. Trust had become a source of competitive advantage. The question then is, how did they do it? How did they design for trust? When we examined the successful ecosystems, we found seven trust tools embedded in them. Let me start with the first one, access. Many of the successful ecosystems define very well who is allowed in and who can be kicked out of the platform for bad behavior. Hopskip drive this access well. It takes the drivers through a strict background check before they are hired into the platform. They also have a zero tolerance policy, which is super clear to everyone. So drivers know they can be terminated if they are caught illegally using their mobile phones while driving. Next is contracts. Trustworthy ecosystems formalize a relationship with all participants through contracts. If you've ever clicked the box, I agree to terms and conditions, 
you signed an ecosystem contract. Then there is incentives, and this is a big one. Successful ecosystems encourage cooperation through rewards or by motivating participants to interact with each other in a positive manner. eBay and Amazon use reputation as an incentive. If you are a seller and you have good reputation, you can charge higher prices for your products. Then there is control, and I know it's a bit off to talk about control in trust, but we are not talking about forceful control. It's more like a gentle guidance, like an invisible hand nudging you in the right direction. Successful ecosystems shape the behavior of participants, so the kind of cooperation required will emerge in the platform. Uber does control well, and it dictates to the driver the best route to take, so the passenger trusts the driver will not take the longer route just to make some more money. Then there is transparency, which is super clear, isn't it? Sort of ecosystems who are trustworthy make past and present behavior visible to everyone participating in the platform. And that's the reason why you feel a pit in your stomach if you've ever booked an Airbnb with a host who is new to the platform and doesn't have any reviews yet. And of course, Airbnb has managed to make transparency work both ways. If you are a guest and you trash a house, the other hosts will know about it thanks to Airbnb review system. Then there is intermediation. How does the platform act as a middleman in the moments of truth of cooperation? Taobao, Alibaba's online shopping platform, does intermediation when it acts as an escrow agent between sellers and buyers. It basically holds the seller's money until the buyer says she is satisfied with the product. Last but not least, mitigation. How does the platform handle mishaps or prevent them from happening in the first place? Did you know that Live Auctioneers, an auctions platform for arts, collectibles, and antiques, has a broad protection program that guarantees payments on the platform? That's an example of mitigation. So those are the seven trust tools, the toolbox. Even more interesting is how they appeared combined in a successful ecosystem we studied. On the one hand, there is no silver bullet, no single tool that can solve for trust. On the other hand, you don't need the seven tool to be successful. You need 3.6 on average. So how do you pick? It depends on the kind of ecosystem you are designing. If interactions among the participants is key, like in most social media ecosystems, you will require a combination of access, transparency, and control in order to be successful. These are the very tools Facebook uses, and these are the tools, interestingly enough, causing Facebook so much grief right now. When there is a man-less smile for the delivery of the promise, like in most gig economy ecosystems, then you will require mitigation in order to cater for failed delivery. When there is a larger symmetry of information, say, between sellers and buyers in used goods marketplaces, then you require a combination of intermediation and mitigation. And of course, when there are many dimensions to the platform, you will require a larger combination of tools. Let me say one more thing, because <laughs> I've been a consultant long enough to know that many of the business leaders watching this may be saying, hey, this is great. 
Let's digitize all these tools and we have the best and most successful ecosystem ever. Well, before you move to action, let me tell you something. Yes, digital plays a meaningful role in enabling trust and in some cases, the very existence of the ecosystem. You could say that digital can be the backbone of systemic trust. However, there is no such a thing as trustless trust. No matter how fabulous the code, how advanced the blockchain, digital cannot solve for trust alone. And that's why we found nine in 10 of the most successful ecosystems to be bionic, bionic trust systems, meaning they use a combination of digital and non-digital human tools, such as contracts, policies, governance, in order to build trust on the platform. At the risk of showing my Star Wars fan card again to you, think about it this way. If you want to build a successful ecosystem and a trustworthy one, you need to think of the Jedi, the Skywalkers. Every time they go into an adventure, they take their favorite droids with them, R2-D2 and C-3PO. They actually make up a bionic team. I know today we talked a lot about trust in business systems. However, that's not where the conversation should end. Systems are all around us. Schools, governments, healthcare. Could those systems become more trustworthy through the use of the tools in the toolbox? I don't see why not. So if you are designing any system, but especially an ecosystem, give those tools a try. If you do that, I can almost guarantee the force will be with you. Trust me. Thank you. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that could help you sleep, focus, act, or be better? Well, there is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. I know because it's definitely helped me too. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has three-minute SOS meditations for you. Need some help falling asleep? They can help you with wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has stuff that you could do with your kids too. And their approach to mindfulness can help you reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Like I said, I use Headspace as well. I used to use it back in the day, then I got off of it for a while to use another tool. But then honestly, I came back to it and it's even better. The voicing, the meditation, it definitely, even just with five minutes a day, it really changes everything for me. It's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews and over 60 million downloads. Incredible. So you deserve to feel happier and Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to headspace.com slash SPI. That's headspace.com slash SPI for a free one month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash SPI today. So after 480 episodes of the Smart Passive Income podcast and well over a thousand episodes of my other show, Ask Pat, 
I got to say, I've never been more scared leading into an interview than I was with today's guest. Well, why was I scared? Well, I was scared because this person that we interviewed today, his name is Chris Voss, the author of a book called Never Split the Difference, former FBI negotiator. This man, every single word matters, it feels. And I was very, very intimidated. And you might even hear in my voice and in the conversation up front, it might be a little bit cringy or a little bit weird, but then we let loose and we have so much fun. And honestly, Chris is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to how to use negotiation in your business and in your life. We talk about situations related with your team. We talk about situations related to potential business deals. I tell you about a failed business deal that I had and Chris unpacks that for me. So, wow, such an incredible, powerful episode that you're about to listen to. Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference, an amazing book that I've read several times and I continue to apply today, not just in business, but literally every day at home. It's just incredible. So sit back and get ready because this one is one for the books, that's for sure. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, when he was a kid, he put goldfish crackers into an aquarium, Pat Flynn. Hey, what's up? It's Pat Flynn here, and welcome to episode 481 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. My name is Pat Flynn, here to help you make more money, save more time, and help more people too. One thing that you can do to actually do all that stuff is to help yourself by learning how to negotiate. Negotiation is a very, very important skill, and who better to learn from than Chris Voss, former FBI, like the lead negotiator for hostage situations and and just really high, crazy things that just I can't even imagine putting myself into. And here he is today on the show to talk about negotiation and to teach us a thing or two. So here he is, Mr. Chris Voss. Chris, welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on today with us. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Your book has been a tremendous factor in my life and the lives of many when it comes to negotiation. I'd love to know, for those who haven't heard about the book yet, tell us why negotiation is one of the most important skills that we need to learn. Yeah, well, great negotiation is about collaboration. And if you can get used to collaborating, I mean, you take your life to the next level. You can take your business to the next level. I mean, you get out of the zero-sum game dynamic and get into the positive some game dynamic. And, you know, I mean, you just, if, if you can't master collaboration, then everything in your life is going to be limited. Everything. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially beginners, we consider tactics like this as we, we often categorize it as almost manipulation, if you will. And a lot of people have been victim to manipulation. Right. So when they become an entrepreneur, they don't want to go down that route. How do you better define for us who are like, oh, I don't, I don't want to play games with people. I don't want to manipulate. How do you respond to that? Yeah, it's really what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, the great thing about our, the Black Swan Method negotiation, I mean, we share the same skills that all great communication underlies, which is really collaboration. So the issue of influence versus manipulation is really not really the eye of the beholder, but what are you trying to do to the other side? I mean, are you trying to cheat the other side or are you trying to take everybody to a, to a better level? The skills are, are simply a tool. Like everybody's got a phone, right? The fact that a lot of people use cell phones to commit evil acts 
does that stop you from using a cell phone? No, that's the cell phone in and of itself is neutral. It's what you're trying to accomplish with it. Now, yeah, you can you can you can manipulate with some of the skills, but it's going to catch up with you. The other side's going to find out, and it's going to cost you in the long run anyway. So it's a tool essentially that that we can we can use to wield uh, great power and great positivity, or perhaps great evil if we choose to go down that route. Yeah, and and but with the great evil stuff, I mean, it has a shelf life. I mean, it is a limited quantity. The other side is gonna find out. And, you know, there's a saying out there, do something positive, three people know about it, do something negative, 12 people know about it. Mm -hmm. You engage in evil, you're going to have to leave that environment and go someplace else because it's going to catch up with you. You're going to get shut out. People are going to know and they're going to stop doing business with you. So the long term success is not there. Thank you for saying that. I think that's really important to start the show with that sort of feel to why this is important, but how we can use it for good, like you said. With your experience with negotiation, I know 24 years as an FBI ne- negotiator, did you always feel growing up that you were good at this or where did you <laughs> no, learn I to become? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get good at it then? You know, I got interested in it. I mean, one of the books that I'm a strong recommender of is The Talent Code, Daniel Coyle, I think. And Coyle would contain that everything is, nothing is natural, everything is learned. The real issue is whether or not you're open to learning. That that may or may not be a natural skill that you have, which means you just learn faster. But no, I just I grew up in an environment where there was a lot of pressure put on me to figure things out. Like my father was an entrepreneur. He'd give me a set of tasks and expect me and my sisters, anybody in our family, anybody that worked for him, go out and figure out how to get the job done. So I think I was probably open to learning early on. And then I was a SWAT guy, you know, SWAT with the FBI. And I made a transition into hostage negotiation just because I was interested in for physical injuries. But I just wanted to learn. I mean, and then when I got into negotiation, it fascinated me. I felt like it was far more satisfying than SWAT ever was. And I had a ball being on the SWAT team. And it was so powerful that I thought this stuff's got to work in day-to-day life. So I decided to try it out in day-to-day life. And it, and it, it just makes everything better along the line. So it's really, you know, does it catch your interest and do you enjoy studying it? And are you willing to do the hard work? Because it's a ball as soon as you start raising a level of your game. When you say we can use negotiation or we do, in fact, use negotiation in our everyday lives, can you pinpoint some of the things that may be so obvious once you point it out, but maybe we just kind of breeze over it and don't understand it as a learning opportunity for negotiation? Yeah, anytime, really anytime you're trying to apply influence or make things better or make the interaction better with the other side. I mean, the most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. Anytime you're trying to influence an outcome, maybe you're just trying to get service quicker. You know, the buy-ins... Coffee at Starbucks is a negotiation. And I, I had a guy that his insider was secrets, world secrets. You know, tell me your secrets was his theory. I'll share your secrets with the world anonymously, but somebody's struggling with the same thing you are. So if we share it anonymously, it'll help other people. He gets a note on a Starbucks coffee cup that says, I give decaf to people that are mean to me. I mean, there was a negotiation there, you know? So how do you make the world a better place? The other side is going to deliver a better product to you more often and more quickly as soon as they feel like they're being treated with respect. So it's all along the lines where negotiation is influencing positive outcomes. 
Yeah, and I think that idea of mutual respect is really important. We saw it in a lot of the stories that you told about some of your highest alert, highest level negotiations with regards to hostages and weapons and all this crazy stuff. And, you know, I'm praying that people listening to this never get themselves in that kind of situation. But we will end up with opportunities to strike a deal one way or another. And it's very important that first impression. Can you talk about the initial contact? If two people are making a deal with each other, how do you set yourself up for success right from the beginning? Because sometimes you say the wrong thing, doesn't matter what you say after that, you're kind of screwed. So how do, how do you set yourself up for success? Well, here's, here's the real problem. I mean, the first impression, it just doesn't need to be bad. I mean, you get away with a mediocre <laughs> first impression. A last impression is a lasting impression. You know, your last impression sets up your next interaction. Last impression is far more valuable than a first impression. So what you're really trying to do in your first impression is not do something bad. You can get away with a mediocre impression because it's not going to cut you off. Now, there, there, are some, there are certain dynamics that are important in a first impression. A first impression is going to happen very quickly. How do you establish a, a solid first impression is going to go quick, and it's not going to be through explanation. But you need to get an emotional connection with people early on. But the last impression is the lasting impression. It's really the issue. I mean, and we look at, for evidence of, of this worldwide, like on Broadway, that you know they've had a saying for years, give them a big finish and they'll forgive you for anything. And the last impression is the lasting impression. So, yes, first impression is the second most important impression. Yes, the first impression develops and moves you to an outcome. But that doesn't mean that you should be satisfied with the first impression and screw up after that. I mean, people's biggest error tends to come in a last impression when people are getting cheap shots in or, you know, they're being mean at the end. I mean, so many people save their cheap shots for last, the people completely underestimate how important a last impression is. Yeah, that's okay. And you said a key word there, bringing emotion into it in some way, shape, or form. What, what does that mean exactly? Does that mean we got to make the person laugh or, you know, cry? Or, or it's probably deeper than that, is it? Well, the two critical issues in a first impression are competence and trust. Now, you don't get competence by demonstrating, by giving your track record. And you don't earn trust by giving your track record. Why pe a lot of people do. Like, I've been doing this for so long. This is how long I've done it. You know, people trying out their resume, that loosely correlates with whether or not you know what's going on. The demonstration of competence really starts with the demonstration of the other side's challenges. You know, if you understand my problems, I don't care how long you've been doing it. You could have been doing it for 20 years and still not have a clue as to what my real challenges are. So I need to know that you know what you're talking about early on. You're going to demonstrate some understanding without giving me answers. Here's what you're up against. Here's how long it's going to take you to solve your problems. Here's what you're really up against. Now you're demonstrating competence in the area without actually giving the other side any expertise at all. It's generating competence without trying to trot out your resume, which could be long and useless. I agree, and especially online with all the social media platforms we have, oftentimes you read these bios, it's me, 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 me. It's just focusing on us. And I think based on a lot of the stories that you told in your book, whenever you're negotiating with somebody, you kind of want to learn what they want first so you can help them in a way. And that's kind of the cool thing I picked up from, from your book that I've applied in my life, in my marriage, and my business. And whenever you can come from a place of service, that's that's amazing. But part of the, of the issue with learning what a person needs help with is just the collection of that information. And in the book, you share a number of different ways to do that. Might you be able to share with us the best ways that one could 
connect and better serve the other person by collecting that information? Yeah, well, just just start out by making an educated guess on what the other side is up against. Now, it's really counterintuitive. And most people won't do this because they're afraid of being wrong. Wrong, right. You know, and so what happens when you're wrong? You're embarrassed. Most people would rather die than be embarrassed. I mean, there's been no shortage of surveys that people would literally rather die than be embarrassed. But the whole approach is it's not about you. It's what's going on with the other side. When you're wrong with the other side, but trying to genuinely demonstrate understanding, the other side is going to correct you. What happens when they correct you? They're collaborating with you. The correction is help. When someone corrects you, they're helping you. You've instantaneously changed into a collaborative relationship without the other side realizing you flipped into that so quickly. People love to correct. I mean, there's, a, there's an instantaneous 90-degree turn in the conversation when you get corrected. The other side loves it. And that's what is so against most people's counterintuitive experiences. Be willing to be corrected. You'd be shocked at how much it accelerates the collaborative nature of the relationship. Be willing to be corrected. That, that's so huge. I can imagine that scenario playing out in so many different ways. Just this idea of taking a guess to start the conversation, to get guided from the person who you're trying to help in terms of where you can take them and help them, that just makes complete sense. But I think it's almost human nature, right? Is it to uh, just, like you said, avoid being wrong, whether it's because we're conditioned that way, we need to be perfect, we need to get straight A's 100% all the time. Negotiation, is it something that just takes practice? to get better at? Like anything else. Negotiation is a perishable skill. Vast majority of the stuff that we deal with on a regular basis is perishable. So first of all, you got to practice to get better. You got to pay attention to what's going on. You got to be willing to learn. Now, accelerating your skills takes more work than maintaining them does, but maintaining still takes some maintenance. I mean, a great analogy is getting into orbit. It takes a lot more energy to get a rocket into orbit. Now, it takes less energy to keep it in orbit, but it takes energy. And a lack of energy, once in orbit, you fall back down to Earth. So it's an understanding that learning is an ongoing process. What does it take to improve? What does it take to maintain? You know, at any given point in time on a perishable skill, you got three choices. You're either going to be worse off tomorrow either going to be where you are or you're going to improve. Two out of three of those choices require effort. There's no way getting around that at least some effort is needed just to maintain. The reality of where you want to be tomorrow is up to you. Beautiful. Thank you, Chris. Let's talk a little bit about money. Money does something funny to our brains. And in business, obviously, there's a lot of money involved. And whether it's negotiating a contract with a person who's going to do some work for you, or even the sale and exchange of a business. I've heard of many rules and a lot of them conflict. I'd love to hear Chris Voss's version of how to negotiate when it comes to money. One rule, for example, I heard is never be the first one to mention a price. But what happens if both people have that approach? We're kind of just dancing around each other. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on negotiation and money. Yeah, we, you know, we got a couple of rules. Money, aka price, there's a price term in every deal. Price terms don't make deals, but they break deals. You have to have an understanding that the price can break the deal. It's not going to make it. But a lot of people are seduced by price. 
you know, they've been great negotiators in the past that realized that they could give you the price and slaughter the other side on terms. Like I could take any price term and make it a great deal or a horrible deal, depending upon the rest of the terms that I drop in. So price can be very seductive. And I'm trying to think of some of the great negotiators of all time that realized that if they negotiated the price term, that it was at best 65% of the way through the negotiation. So price doesn't make a deal, but it definitely breaks a deal. And I could probably continue to lower the price if I paint another picture for long-term success on where is this going to take you. So do you name price first or not? We don't name price first in my company. Now we'll set expectations, but we won't name price first because I want to know where your price is coming from. We're going to go back and forth a little bit. Your reluctance to name a price is going to give me a good feel of whether or not you're cheating me. If you're completely focused on price, you're probably suckering me in to be the fool in the game. We know that, for example, somebody that's really, really focused on price with us, we're the fool in the game. We're going to be a competing bid. They're going to go with somebody else. They just want to use our price term to drive the price down on somebody else. So was there ever a deal to begin with? You know, it's not a sin to uh, not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. That's the fool in the game. There's some deals that you're never going to get, or there's some deals that you're only going to get if I let you slaughter me on price. I don't need that. Yeah, it's it's going to cost me money overall. So there's a number of factors to come into play as to what's the focus on price, what's the purpose of price. I'm going to make a better deal with you or not. Now, you may want to work a really long time to take advantage of me. I'm going to cut out of the deal early on because the length of time that it takes me to make the deal is going to cost me money. The real commodity is time and whether or not you want to collaborate over the long run. If you don't, I'll find somebody that does, even though it's a minority of the population. In the U.S. alone, there are at least 2 million people that want to do business with a Black Swan group. No less than 2 million, and that's confined to the U.S. I'm not going to waste my time with people that are are trying to cut my throat. There are too many people that want a great long-term relationship with me. Tell us about the Black Swan Group really quick for those who don't know exactly what that is. Yeah, well, BlackSwanLTD.com, B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com is where our website is. We are a team. We've recruited some of the most talented hostage negotiators ever who also know how to apply this stuff to the business world because hostage negotiation is just emotional intelligence on steroids. And we've made the transition to the point where what we're teaching is so evolved past what we learned as hostage negotiators because I get talented people that do nothing but advance our skills. So I get get a team of really talented people. You know, you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. We're coaching people into extraordinary results, making their lives better and making their businesses better. So we have a great team. We've got a team across the board. We've got business development people. You know, we're, we're having a great time helping people find better lives. Incredible. BlackSwanLTD.com if you want to check that out. And don't undercut Chris, obviously. We've talked about that already. Random question. What would it be like to play poker with you? I'm just curious. Yeah, well, although I play some cards, <laughs> I, you know, poker is an interesting thing in that you're hiding cards from the other side. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I'm not, 
you can't take me hostage. What do I mean by that? You, you can't make me say yes. So I got no reason to hide my cards. I'm going to be really very open and honest with you because I'm, I'm more than happy to move on and not make a deal with you. So yeah, body language is what you read in poker. And, you know, the other side is giving off tons of body language. But I'm going to show my cards because I need you to show your cards for us to collaborate for an even better deal. That's the difference between a zero-sum game and a positive-sum game. I'll show my cards so I can get you to show your cards so that we can come up with a better hand between the two of us. And if you don't, I'm walking away. And that's the one real difference between poker is you really can't walk away in poker. And I'm happy to walk away in real life. That's, that was awesome, Chris. I was not expecting that answer. So good. It would be really interesting, though, to play within the confines of Texas Hold'em with you. Just I think I would fold every time just because I'm a little intimidated, but it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate you for that. You mentioned body language. You know, when we're at a conference, for example, and we're meeting people back when we could go to conferences and whatnot. But there's a lot of people who are there for genuinely wanting to meet people, connect and partner. And there's a lot of people there who are there for nefarious reasons, perhaps. And a lot of times they're so good at what they do, it's hard to tell whether or not they're talking to us for the right reasons, or perhaps they just want something from us. How do we as beginners within this space who maybe are going to conferences for the first time, wheeling and dealing with people, is there anything in the body language or any signals that we can understand to at least shield us a little bit from not so great things happening? Yeah, well, body language has to be read in context. You know, instead, instead of looking for the tells, really look for the way people tell the truth. I mean, any given individual has probably got seven, eight, nine different ways that they conceal information, that they lie. They're classic tells, if you will. If you tell the truth, you got one way you tell the truth. I mean, that's really the way the lie detector is 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 built anyway. If somebody puts you on a lie detector, they ask you a series of baseline questions where you tell the truth. What day is it? What's your name? What's your birthday? What'd you have for breakfast today? The stuff that you tell the truth on. And they lay down your baseline. And then when you deviate from that, you're lying. It doesn't matter how many seven, eight, nine ways you lie. It's easier for me to keep track of the one way you tell the truth. What do you look like when you're telling the truth? Now, maybe you don't tell the truth at all. It's, I'm like, all right, cool. You ain't telling the truth at all. That is not a good sign. That means you're always trying to manipulate me. And in point of fact, when an experienced lie detector professional says, you know, they'll say this person is deceiving all the time. We didn't get a tell the truth baseline on them, which means they're always lying. So, you know, that's the first issue. What does somebody look like when they're telling the truth? Now, secondly, you know, we, we go for proof of life early on. My company teaches an entire methodology which works really fast. But what it really boils down to is I'm going to ask you, like, you know, if we make a deal, what's this future look like between the two of us going forward? And how do you want to proceed? What I'm looking for is, are you going to lay out a vision for proceeding with me? Or are you going to dodge laying out a vision for the future at all? If you've got no vision for dealing with me in the future, then you're not going to. Because if you're dealing with me and you want to deal with me in the future, it's a visioning question. You've already thought about what the future would look like. Human beings always think of it before they engage in a conversation. If you can't lay out some sort of a vision for the future with me, then that means you do not intend to have a future with me. And you are wasting my time. You're looking for me to be the fool in the game. 
You want free evidence. You want stuff that's free for me. And then you're going to move on. I'm going to diagnose that early on. And then I'm very politely, the last impression is a lasting impression. I will probably say, look, I just don't think that I can help you today. You know, I I don't think I'm in a position to fulfill your needs. When you're ready to talk about me, talk with me about how you want to proceed in the future, I'm happy to talk. But until then, I'm going to stop wasting your time. Thank you for thinking of me at all. (laughs) And then I'm pulling out. So good. Okay, next, I have a question that relates to something that happened to me recently. I was negotiating the purchase of a particular asset from this person. And we had talked about price a little bit and we came to an agreement and then literally have been ghosted. No reply. This person's not replying to my emails. I cannot get a hold of them, even though he agreed to the purchase. And I'm wondering what I did wrong or if I did something wrong or if this is a sign that perhaps I should just move on anyway because it was a good deal, but I'm a little confused. Might you be able to help me unpack sort of perhaps what happened? Well, the first problem is they were likely just looking for you to be a competing bid, the fool in the game. They were doing due diligence. Now, are they doing due diligence against you for the favorite? You know, there's a saying, if you don't know, if you don't know who the fool in the game is, it's you. Hmm. So were they the fool in the game? Is there a competitor? Who's the favorite they were after in the first place? Now, possibly the status quo was the competitor. What's the characterization of the person seeking an answer from you? Chances are, if they're a recently promoted executive, they do a thing called due diligence, but they're not changing the status quo. Really common for recently promoted executives to make it look like they're doing a due diligence, mm-hmm. but they're just going to keep in the status quo. A number of years ago, I was advising a security company, brand new executive in charge of security for Google, solicited us for proposals and written proposals and come in and give us a pitch. Everybody, Google, wow, holy cow, what a great company to land. That would be wonderful. And all sorts of companies were knocking themselves out. It was a brand new person put in charge of Google security. They were doing due diligence. They're not going to upset the status quo. And everybody was wasting their time. This is very common for recently promoted or recently hired executive. They're not going to disrupt the status quo until they've been there for a while. So the competitor may have been the status quo. On the other hand, the competitor could have been a favorite. They're just looking for you to come up with a competing bid. So really price focus. You got to understand what the context is and what are they looking for? A lot of people waste time looking for competing bids. Yeah, that's helpful. I think I think that latter one is definitely one that makes sense. Probably just wanted to get an answer to see if it was even worth bothering with me anymore compared to perhaps who knows how many other people they were having the same conversation with. And that's probably one of the struggles with doing business online in email. But yeah. I will tell you that at least no less than 20% of every business's opportunities are fool in the game. They're fake opportunity. It's an interesting book out there called Challenger Sale. They came up with the 20% data. They pulled executives across the board and literally said, how often do you engage with a potential business partner, a potential vendor, when you are never going to do business with them? You only need a competing bid from them. You only need intel, but you're engaging with them and you are lying to them about whether or not they're going to get business. 
How often does that happen? And they got the business executives across the board to admit to it happening about 20% of the time. They have no intention of doing business. They need a competing bid, or they just want to know that their status quo is due diligence. Now, the the thing here is that 20% is a low number because they ask business executives, how often of the time are you lying to people about whether or not you're giving them an opportunity? They're not exaggerating how often they're lying. They're minimizing it, which means that it's more than 20%. Every company that we've taught how to diagnose this, the number actually raises sometimes as high as 80% of the time you're being played for fool in a game. Wow. But let's pretend it's only 20% of the time. Imagine how much more profitable your business is without getting any better at negotiation at all if you just eliminated 20% of the fool in the game instances. Put 20% of your life back into play. You're automatically raising your compensation based on the return on your investment of your time. You don't even have to get any better just by eliminating the fool in the game instances. Wow. I love that. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. As we finish up here in the main part of the podcast, I'd love to ask you about this idea, which I was thinking about the other day, because a lot of times we are negotiating with other people and in circumstances that involve a lot of different environmental issues and variables and whatnot. Where do you feel we can better negotiate with ourselves internally with that voice in our head? I think that's something that we often don't think about is that we have to give and take with ourselves sometimes with relation to our goals, our abilities. You know, we want to be an NBA player, but maybe we just kind of understand that maybe we're not cut out to be one. How do we have these internal conversations with ourselves using a lot of the principles that you teach when it comes to uh, multi-person negotiation? Yeah, you know, the biggest thing is people beat themselves before they even get to the table. You know, they say, ah, this is a non-starter. I'm not going to bring it up. You know, there's all sorts of compromises in advance. So you're beating yourself before you get to the table. I don't want to throw this out there. They're never going to agree. Nobody that you can't predict that and be 100 percent accurate. And there's also a value for the other side to disagree anyway, because you begin to trigger reciprocity. So beating yourself before you get to the table is a huge mistake. You cannot diagnose it specifically. Our mental default mechanism is to be in survival mode, which is overly negative. There's a difference between your survival mindset and your success mindset. Success mindset is a completely is not your survival default mode. Our default mode is to be survival, which is to be negative, overly negative. Success mindset is overly positive. You're smarter in a positive frame of mind. You know, the quick hack is curiosity. If you can be genuinely curious, you'll discover more in the interaction than you ever would have if you were in simple survival mindset. So people compromising in advance and lowering their expectations before they even get to the table is one of the biggest mistakes that people make. I love that. Genuinely curious. It's one thing I teach my, I help a lot of people with how to start a podcast. And when they do interviews, they get really nervous. And that's the advice I give them. Just be genuinely curious about the person you're speaking to and things can fall into place from there. What does that turn into in a negotiation scenario? What does being genuinely curious mean? Does that mean simply just asking more questions or what? Well, it's, you know, it's really listening and sort of testing the other side out, probing to whether or not your understanding is correct. What it in fact does is it broadens your brain ability to take in information. You're in a positive frame of mind. 
positive frame of mind makes you at least 31% smarter. You have more agility. You can take in more information. You have more mental endurance. You're broader in how much information you can take in. Your brain just becomes capable of accepting and seeing more than it is in a positive frame of mind. The other side is also tremendously encouraged to give you more information. If they, if an environment is created where they don't feel attacked, they don't feel judged, you trigger thoughts in their side. They come up with more information. It's really how do you shift out of the zero-sum game into the positive-sum game? 70 to 90% of the people that you interact with want to shift into the positive-sum game. Just by sheer numbers alone, you make more money taking this approach. Mm -hmm. Is getting or transitioning from the negative mindset, survival mindset to positive, is that just simply changing the story that you're telling yourself about the circumstances? Or how do you, how do you get into that positive mindset? Yeah, a lot of it is the story that you tell yourself. You know, what, what sort of mindset do you do in advance? And it's a little bit like mental hygiene. Yeah. And I, and I, and I love the analogy of brushing your teeth. You know, did you brush your teeth today or did you not brush your teeth today because you did it yesterday? Well, most people, yeah, of course I brushed my teeth today. As a matter of fact, I brushed my teeth twice. Well, your mental hygiene requires daily approach or you shift back into the default mode. So be genuinely curious. Be aware that there's always a better deal to be had. There's always a better deal to be had if the other side just doesn't feel like they're going to be betrayed. So there's always a better deal to be had, but it takes some mindset approach because your default mode is to be negative. Thank you for that. This has been tremendous, Chris. Thank you. Make sure to stick around just for a little bit more. I have some more questions after we finish up and wrap this portion of the show. But one more time, never split the difference. What would be the best way to serve you in terms of getting that book? Is it Amazon? Is there another place that you'd rather have people go? Well, there's two things I'd recommend. First of all, if you're going to buy the book, and you should, you should. buy it from Amazon because Amazon's prices are better than anybody else's. <laughs> I mean, I, I, love, I love the way Amazon does the pricing. I mean, they've been fantastic. We've done a lot through them. Now, the next thing that you should do is subscribe to our newsletter, which is complimentary. It's one of the many free things that we can give you. Now, the fact that it's complimentary, that it's free, is not the real value to it. The real value to it is it's concise and it's digestible. Like, for example, I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal's daily 10-point briefing. And that is so complicated that I can never digest it all. There's, I got I to gotta decide what to read. Yeah. By the time I decide what to read, I'm exhausted. The Black Swan Group's newsletter is actionable and it's concise. It comes out of Tuesday morning. It's a gateway to every free product that we have. A lot of people get a long way with just the book and the newsletter alone. Simple way to sign up, text to sign up function. The number you text to is 33777. That's 33777. Send the message, Black Swan Method, three words, spaces between, not cap sensitive. If you send B-L-A-C-K space, S-W-A-N space, method, M-E-T-H-O-D, You'll get a response back to asking for your email address. You'll sign up. We'll help you raise the level of your game. There is much more complicated and more expensive stuff for us to teach you. 
you got to master the basics first before you're ready for the other stuff, before you're really ready to accelerate things. Take this the free stuff in addition to the book first. Man, there's a call to action if I've ever heard one. That's Chris Voss right there. 33777 is who you send the text message to. Black Swan Method is the message. And then you can go from there. Did I get that right? You got it right. Yeah. All right, Chris, thank you so much for coming in today. We appreciate you and congrats on the book. Looking forward to maybe a next one coming sometime. We're working on another one. We're trying to we're trying to capture the most effective way to put it together in a book. But yeah, we, we've got we've got stuff in the works. Awesome. Well, well, we'll be here to support you when it comes out. Thank you. Wow. So you see what I mean? You see why I was a little bit nervous going into this? But I hope that you can see that by having conversations with people, you can get to know each other, you can let loose. And when we go into our backstage, uh, for those of you who are on the Premium Pass, we just have so much fun. So I hope you'll check that out if you haven't already. The Premium Pass, which you can check out on Supercast. Anyway, more information about that in the show notes. And if you wanna go to the show notes, go to smartpassiveincome.com slash session 481. Once again, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 481. Mr. Chris Voss, thank you so much. You can check him out in his book, Never Split the Difference, highly recommended, and also his group, blackswanltd.com. Again, blackswanltd.com, so you can see more about his training opportunities there. And wow, what an episode. I hope you enjoy that. Let me know what you think, at Pat Flynn on Instagram. You can share this in your stories. I'd love to uh, share that forward as well. And let me know on Twitter if you enjoyed this. And if you wanted to tag Black Swan Limited as well, I'd love to see Chris potentially respond and, and enjoy some of the response from you. So anyway, this has been incredible. Thank you so, so much for listening in. I appreciate you and I appreciate the reviews that have been coming in as well. I read all of them. I see them from all around the world and it just makes me so, so energetic to move on and continue to push out these episodes for you. And again, make sure to listen in on Friday as well because we have our follow-up Fridays where I continue to talk about how I apply what we learn and what we talk about in these Wednesday interview episodes in my real life and it's just you and me on Friday. So I hope that you've been enjoying those. I've I've gotten a lot of great feedback, but if you haven't listened to those yet, those are our Friday episodes, a little bit shorter, but just you and me. And I'm really excited to uh, share that with you with relation to this episode very soon. Thank you so much. Take care. Please subscribe if you haven't already and peace out. Team Flynn for the win. You rock. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Sound design and editing by Paul Gregoris. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. The Smart Passive Income Podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI. And today... I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point, so I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray, and in it, they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat-out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories, and I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure and it always finds a bright side. I really love it and I think you will too. 
So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it. doesn't have to stop here. If you have any questions, suggestions, or feedback, head over right now to Twitter and Facebook and like, share, and get involved. Join us next time. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.